know, you know someone has met Jesus when they voluntarily work with three-year-olds. Can I get, can I get an amen? All right, now, uh, I checked the calendar, and I've studied the horoscopes, not really, and he is still risen. Can I get an amen? He, I mean, I, last, last I checked, last I checked, we celebrate resurrection like all the time, right? Not just one, one weak sauce day a year where we have Easter bunnies and such. I mean, it, the, the resurrection actually means that the, all of the singing and the serving and the praying and all of that stuff actually counts for something. And so we are people who uh, don't worship a crucified Jesus. We worship a risen Jesus. And that is a wonderful, wonderful, wonderful thing. So brothers and sisters, I want to welcome you. My name is Mike. I am getting more handsome. And I am so excited about that. One of the things that's happening, besides that handsomeness on the increase, uh, is uh, we're going to start a new series. Some of you are going... I don't, I don't see why that's funny at all. <laughs> He's still risen? We are so glad that you are with us. We're going to start a new series this morning. I'm excited about that. Also, in two weeks, we are sending on sabbatical Kenton Bishore, who uh, for the last 27 years has been the senior pastor uh, at Mariners. We are a part of that community. There's a community uh, in Huntington Beach also for 27 years. I mean, that, that's like older than I am. That for 27 years, some of you are going, that's not funny either. <laughs> it gets worse. Uh, we are sending him on sabbatical in, uh, I think it's next weekend, and, uh, until September, he'll be back. And one of the great things we get to do as a community is we get to bless that and participate in that. And I want you to know that I personally am going to be involved in that. Kenton uh, and I have been friends for 15 years. I used to work at Mariners Irvine back in the day. And uh, so I'm really privileged to help out. I'll be taking some more responsibility up at the Irvine campus. And so I want you to know, of the weekends that I'm available to teach, 50% of them will be up at Irvana. 50% of them will be with the family at Mission Viejo. I want you to know that. Last night, it was so funny. Somebody just went, boo, boo. And, and it's like, so with great joy, we give this gift. Uh, and so... So I want to let you know that's coming. You'll, you'll be seeing more of Jeff McGuire, who uh, we know and we love. He's going to be helping carrying the teaching load. And a guy named Kyle Zimmerman, who is amazing and much more handsome than I, uh, is going to be uh, helping lead our staff team. And so that is sitting before us as kind of an adventure this summer. But this morning, we're going to start in the book of John. If you have a Bible, let's go to John chapter 20. Good morning. Was that a little kid who said good morning back? That was awesome. Hey, go to John chapter 20. I'm so glad you're with us. We are going to look a little bit at this uh, unpredictable God that we follow. Now, if I had resurrected from the dead, I would be a bit cocky. I'm not going to lie. I'd be, I'd be kind of showing off through the streets of the city that, you know, the religious leadership had just put me to death. I'd be, I'd be a little, you know, I'd be a little boastful. I'm not going to lie about that. Jesus, however, takes the subtle approach about like who he's appearing to and so on. So go to John chapter 20. I just want to read a couple of snapshots that to me seem so weird. I could hardly take it. So first, Mary Magdalene 
Uh, she goes to the tomb, discovers, it, it discovers it's empty. And then um, verse 14, John 20. At this, she turned around and saw Jesus. Uh, excuse me. At this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing there. But she did not realize that it was Jesus. He asked her, woman, why are you crying? Who is it you're looking for? Duh. Can I say that? Thinking he was the gardener. She said, sir, if you've carried him away, tell me where uh, you've put him. Okay, so evidently, Jesus has risen from the dead and looks like a gardener, at least a little bit. Uh, John chapter 20, go down to verse 19. On the evening of that first day of the week, when the disciples were together, with the doors locked for fear of the Jewish leaders, Jesus just shows up and stood among them and said, peace be with you. Okay, awesome. Go down to verse 26. A week later, his disciples were in the house again. Thomas was with them. Though the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, peace be with you. So you have, I mean, is it weird yet? It's just, it's just, I'd be a little more cocky. I'd be showing off a little bit more. I wouldn't be showing up to like locked doors full of my fearful disciples. I'd be, go, if you would, this is so, this is so funny. Um, go, go to chapter 21, verse 4. So the disciples go fishing. And, and early in the morning, Jesus stood on the shore, but the disciples did not realize it was Jesus. He called out to them, friends, haven't you any fish? Have you caught any fish? No, they answered. Throw your net on the right side of the boat and you will find some. Now, can you imagine how angry the fishermen were to have some random dude? They've been fishing all night, haven't caught a thing, and then some random dude says, hey, check the right side of the boat. Like, they haven't been checking the right side of the boat. <laughs> and, then, <laughs> and then they recognize it's Jesus. They catch a whole bunch of fish. Notice verse 12. Jesus said to them, come and have breakfast. Okay, so, I mean... If I've risen from the dead, my first maneuver isn't to go like fix breakfast for my friends. All right? I, and then, and then he, he restores Peter. And then this awesome thing, Peter denies Jesus three times. Jesus restores Peter three times. Do you love me? Yes. Feed my sheep. Do you love me? Yes. Feed my lambs. Do you love me? Yes. Feed my lambs. And then he says this, this crazy thing in, uh, in verse 18, chapter 21. He says to Peter, very truly, I tell you that when you were younger, you dressed yourself and went where you wanted. But when you are old, you, are, you will stretch out your hands and someone else will dress you and lead you where you don't want to go. Jesus said this to indicate the kind of death by which Peter would glorify God. So, so when you were younger, you got to be in charge. When you're older, your hands will be stretched out. Peter was crucified upside down according to church tradition. So his hands were stretched out and he was taken where he did not want to go. Jesus said to Peter, then he said, follow me. Peter turned and saw that the disciple whom Jesus loved was following them. Now that's John's very humble way of referring to himself in his own gospel. <laughs> Peter turned and saw that John was following them. Jump down to verse 21. When Peter saw him, he asked, Lord, what about him? So Peter's just been told he's going to die painfully. And he looks at this other guy, the disciple whom Jesus loves, and says, well, what about that guy? Now notice what Jesus says. If I want him to remain alive until I return, 
What is that to you? You must follow me. Now, does it seem a bit odd? You've just conquered death, you're king of the universe. And the way that you're showing this off is you're just bopping into locked rooms, you're cooking breakfast for your friends, you're being mistaken for a gardener, and, and then, and then, it's like, hey, Peter, um, you're going to die this kind of gruesome death, but this guy, don't worry about him. What is that to you? You must follow me. I want to talk a little bit this morning about what it is to follow an unpredictable God, because there's no way you can read these stories and take them seriously and somehow come to the conclusion that God is figure-outable. There is utterly no way he is predictable, controllable. There's no way he fits in our boxes. I mean, if this is what he's doing after his resurrection, could any of us have drawn that up? You know, if, some, if God just said to you, hey, Jesus is risen from the dead, what should he spend his time doing? None of you would have said cook breakfast. Not one. Not one. And yet, so much of modern Christianity, I think, is designed to actually keep us from really trusting the unpredictable God. So much of modern Christianity is actually designed to make him predictable. And we have to be careful because there's a difference between being predictable and being reliable. Jesus is reliable. He's always good. He's always faithful. He's always love. But reliability doesn't equal predictability. And when he walked the earth, nobody recognized him. Why is it that we're so sure we can? Why is it that over the the course of centuries, instead of getting bigger, Jesus has gotten smaller? Why is it that we want a God who operates according to generally accepted accounting principles and the law of cause and effect and if-then statements? If I, I mean, and I do this. This is my heart. God, if I give you money, you give me money, right? If I pray for my kids every night, you give me perfect kids. And all the parents said, false. Right? If, if I stay pure before I'm married, I have the best romantic life <laughs> after we get married. And all the married people said, eh. <laughs> I think you were single. Probably the people going, oh, are the single people. <laughs> hey, once a month, whether we need it or not, brothers and sisters. We, if you can move beyond that little, (laughs) we are a people who would love, if there were a way to manipulate or control God, wouldn't we want to find it? Now, don't get all pious on me and say, oh, no, no, of course we would. That's why we all feel compelled. In Jesus' name, amen. That's why we can't just end a prayer, drop it, and it's, we got to say in Jesus' name, just in case that's like, that's what counts. All of us in our hearts want a radically tamer version of the God who is there. I mean, it's much easier to have a relationship with a book and have a, relation with, a relationship with theology or have a relationship with a worship set than it is to have a relationship with a living God who does not condescend to ask us our opinions on his behavior, who is not really interested in our definitions of his morality. Every now and again, we've got a reminder that the same Jesus who we 
can call Abba, right? Who taught us that the Father is Abba, Father. That same Jesus, when John, the disciple who Jesus loved, saw that same Jesus decades later on an island, he fell down face first because he was in his glory. That our God is Abba and our God is a consuming fire and it's both. And that this God, this God asks us to walk by faith when so much of our religiousness is designed to keep us from actually having to trust him. Go to Matthew chapter 11. Let's look at some unpredictable God stories. Matthew chapter 11. John the Baptist. His last name was not the Baptist, by the way. He... He was Jesus' cousin. He was six months older than Jesus. He was called the Baptist because back in those days, you would have ceremonial washings. But John preached a gospel of repentance. Normally, the only people that would get baptized were people who were getting baptized into Judaism. But John was calling Jews to be baptized, to prepare the way for the coming Messiah. And John spoke of the Messiah very powerfully. He said, you know, I'm baptizing you with water. He will baptize you with fire. The shoes, the sandals of this guy, I'm not even worthy to untie. And in fact, when Jesus first makes an appearance in his public ministry, John looks at him and says, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Which makes it a bit odd that later in Jesus' ministry, when John is in prison, he asks some questions that just don't seem to line up with his earlier opinion. Matthew chapter 11, verse 2. When John, who was in prison, heard about the deeds of the Messiah, he sent his disciples to ask Jesus, Are you the one who is to come, or should we expect someone else? Now, it, it just if you read it in English, you're like, well, I mean, what was it about Jesus like raising people from the dead, walking on water, casting out demons that was really unclear, right? But there's something else going on that we might miss. One of the things that was true of folks back then is that many, 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 all, almost all of them would have vast portions of the Old Testament memorized. And one of the ways, particularly rabbis, would dialogue with each other is they would use something called a remez. A remez, would, you would quote a part of the verse, but you had the whole passage in view. And because everyone had it memorized... You didn't have to quote the whole thing. You knew it so intimately. So if I said, for God so loved the world, I'm like, we'd all know. The Lord is my shepherd. We'd all know. Right? If you're talking movies, and I said a long time ago in a galaxy far, far away, you'd all know. If we're talking stories, and I said they lived happily ever after, you'd all know. So they would, they would speak and have debates using this. It was hinting. It was just, you'd, you'd give a little bit of the passage, but the whole thing would be in view. This question turns out to be a remez. Because Jesus, excuse me, John the Baptist doesn't ask Jesus, hey, are you the Messiah? He uses a very specific phrase, are you the one who is to come? Now that phrase is used in Zechariah 9. When there is a prophecy given about the king returning to Jerusalem riding a donkey, and as part of the king's ministry, setting prisoners free. So what's John asking? Will I be set free? Now notice Jesus' response. Jesus replies, 
Go back and report to John what you hear and see. The blind receive sight, the lame walk, those who have leprosy are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, and the good news is proclaimed to the poor. Then he adds this really cryptic sentence. Blessed is anyone who does not stumble on account of me. Now, we need the telestrator, brothers and sisters, for this glorious illustration. Because John asks a question that's a remez. He's hinting from Zechariah. Jesus answers him with a remez with two partial quotes from Isaiah. I know you find this so utterly fascinating. So this is the Matthew statement that he makes. Let me, yes. See, it needed that right there. Okay? So this is Matthew. Now, I want you to read, this is a, this is a part from Isaiah 35. Then the eyes of the blind will be opened, the ears of the deaf will be unstopped, the lame will leap like a deer, the mute tongue will shout for joy. So, when you go back to Jesus' statement, the blind receive sight, the lame walk, uh, the deaf hear, all of that would have been, oh yeah, yeah, Isaiah 35. But then notice, there's another part of Isaiah. This is Isaiah 61. The spirit of the sovereign Lord is on me because the Lord has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor, to bind up the brokenhearted, and then notice, to proclaim freedom for the captives and release from darkness for the prisoners. But I don't remember Jesus including that last part in his reply to John, right? So notice, if you're John and you know these passages intimately, the blind receive sight, the lame walk, those who have leprosy are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised. And good news is proclaimed to the poor. That phrase would have alerted you. Now we're talking Isaiah 61. And instead of responding with, and prisoners will be set free, he says instead, blessed is the one who does not stumble on account of me. Why did he have to say that? Because his answer to John was, yes, I'm Messiah, and no, you will not be released from prison. My work does not include you being released from prison. Do you see that? Yes, I'm Messiah, and yes, you will die. And so he has to add, blessed is the one who does not stumble on account of me. C.S. Lewis has this great line. In Chronicles of Narnia, you remember Aslan, the great lion? Narnia is this magical place where animals talk. Three, uh, four school children find themselves in this land. One of them gets sort of wooed um, by an evil witch. And the three, three of the others are trying to find the one. And they come across a pair of talking beavers. Mr. and Mrs. Beaver. And they, and they start talking about Aslan, this lion, and, and Mrs. Beaver says, Mondo, if anyone who can appear, if there's anyone who can appear before Aslan without their knees knocking, they're either braver than most or else just silly. Lucy, one of the children, asks, then he isn't safe? Safe, said Mr. Beaver. You don't hear what Mrs. Beaver tells you. Who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe, but he's good. We would love a Jesus whose primary objective is to keep us safe. The problem 
is that Jesus came to rescue us, not to please us. The problem is that this Jesus seemed content to allow his cousin to die in prison when it was within his power to not do so. So God is good all the time. God is good. He is love all the time. He is love. Always and forever. There's no shadow in Him. There's no bit of darkness in Him. But we think that equals He should be predictable. He should be controllable. He should be manageable. And the journey of faith for so many of the folks written of in the Scriptures is not of a God who always makes sense looking forwards. He makes sense looking backwards. But very rarely does he make sense looking forwards. But you and I, we're people who want to know ahead of time. We're into risk management. I want to know the odds. I have insurance. right? I don't, I don't want to actually find myself in a situation where the only thing I can trust is the character of God. That's why all of us want to know the trick to finding God's will. Because that way we don't have to trust him. You are sitting, many of you sit with major decisions sitting in front of you. And we're just terrified. And I don't know that that's always of God. Because we want it written in the clouds. We want a neon flashing light. And sometimes God is so gracious, he'll give us that. But that isn't the goal. The goal is that we would learn to live by faith and not by sight. See, the opposite of faith in the Bible isn't doubt. Not at all. It's sight. Faith in the Bible is trusting in what you cannot see. Sight is trusting only in what you can see. And so Paul says very clearly, walk by faith and not by sight. The problem is you and I love sight. We love T-charts and risk management and generally accepted accounting principles. And I want to know what the end of the journey is before I say yes. The problem is the project of God is antithetical to that posture. Because it's not about keeping us safe. Not about keeping us comfortable. Go, if you would, to the book of Deuteronomy. Moses has an interesting career resume. Deuteronomy 32. Moses, oh my goodness. 40 years, he's in Pharaoh's court. 40 years, he's leading sheep through the wilderness. And then 40 years, he's leading the Israelites through the same wilderness. And if you remember, the first generation of Israelites out of Egypt were rebellious. They didn't trust God. So God said, well, great. You guys can just spend 40 years in the desert, dying off until the new generation emerges that will trust me. And now this new generation stands at the cusp of the promised land. And notice what God says to Moses. Verse 49, Deuteronomy 32 Go up into the Abarim range to Mount Nebo and Moab across from Jericho and view Canaan, the land I'm giving the Israelites as their own possession. So this is the promised land. For 40 years, they've been marching towards. There on that mountain, you will die and be gathered to your people. Verse 51, this is because you and Aaron broke faith with me. And because you did not uphold my holiness among the Israelites, verse 52, therefore you will only see the land from a distance. For 40 years, trying to get to the promised land, and he dies just in view of it. Is it possible to follow God and not have it end with a pretty red bow? 
I mean, I, I sat last night. I was late to the 5 o'clock service because I was sitting with a, I think she's 38, 38-year-old mom who has just come home to die of cancer. And her body's just devouring itself. I mean, it's so awful and it's so tragic. And she loves Jesus. Is it possible to follow Jesus and not have everything turn out just fine? Absolutely. Or we have to radically redefine what just fine means. Because as it turns out, just fine doesn't mean immunity from suffering. It means that God is present in the middle of it. And I know that's easy for us to say, oh yeah, of course. But how much of us and how much of modern American Christianity cries out saying, look at what we've done for you. I mean, when bad stuff happens, my first reaction isn't, the Lord gives, the Lord takes away, blessed be the name of the Lord. My first reaction is, why me? Are you kidding me? There are evil people out there. I'm a pastor. (laughs) And that's pretty much what God does. (laughs) I mean, but do you see implicit in my disappointment with him is the expectation that he and I live in a cause-effect relationship. And don't all of you, I mean, don't you You who say you live under grace, don't you implicitly believe that when you're more obedient on those good days that somehow God should reward you and when you're disobedient, you're waiting for the other shoe to fall? Isn't that true? Even though we'd all say, of course we're saved by grace. And yet we can't help but fall into the same patterns of relating to people that just are so incumbent to sinful beings. And so you and I, In a situation like that, we just try to to get God to make sense. And so we cook up boxes for him. And and we'll call them doctrine, or we'll call them, I mean, and and hell, I'm a huge, I was going to say hallelujah, I didn't mean, I didn't mean to stop that, I just changed thought, just for the record. Why am I doing this? I have no idea. There are times in the middle of a sermon you become self-aware. And you never want that to happen. Never. <laughs> I'm a huge, hallelujah, I was going to say I'm a huge fan of doctrine. So don't, don't miss me on that. But is it easier to have a relationship with a creed than it is with a consuming fire? Absolutely it is. Absolutely it is. And if we're not careful... We try to get God to show us the whole journey before we say yes, but this God doesn't work that way. We want, we, want, we want to say to him, hey, show us, and then we'll follow. When he says, follow, and then I'll show you. We, we want to say, okay, okay, get, show me your will, and I'll obey. Romans 12 teaches, no, 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 you obey, and I'll show you my will. We want it all mapped out ahead of time. And what's Jesus say to Peter? What's it to you? You follow me. There is no one-size-fits-all journey in following me. Now that has pretty profound implications. Go, if you would, to the book of Jeremiah. This is a message I desperately need. Because I think, okay, well, 
if I'm, if I'm walking with God, then everything should be perfect. <laughs> so imagine you're writing your own autobiography, which I guess your own autobiography is redundant. Imagine you're writing your autobiography. And, and this is how you talk about your birth, okay? Jeremiah 1, verse 4. We're turning, we're turning. The word of the Lord came to me saying, before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. Before you were born, I set you apart. I appointed you as a prophet to the nations. That sounds pretty cool, doesn't it? In fact, go down to verse 9. The Lord reached out his hand and touched my mouth and he said to me, I have put my words in your mouth. To see today, I appoint you over nations and kingdoms to uproot them and to tear them down, to destroy and overflow, overflow, overthrow, to build and to plant. I mean, does that sound pretty amazing? Okay, well, I guess to some of us. (laughs) Go to chapter 20. None of you are writing that in your autobiography. Go to chapter 20. How does that work out for the prophet Jeremiah? That sort of epic call. How does that work out? (laughs) Jeremiah 20, verse 7. You deceived me, Lord, and I was deceived. You overpowered me and you prevailed. I am ridiculed all day long. Everyone mocks me. Whenever I speak, I cry out proclaiming violence and destruction so the word of the Lord has brought me insult and reproach all day long. But if I say I will not mention his word or speak anymore his name, his word is like, is in my heart like a fire, a fire shut up in my bones. I am weary of holding it in. Indeed, I cannot. Jump down to verse 15. He, so he, then, he, then he praises God in the middle of that and then he comes back. Verse 14, excuse me. Cursed be the day I was born. May the, may the day my mother bore me not be blessed. Cursed be the man who brought my father the news, who made him very glad, saying, A child is born to you, a son. May that man be like towns the Lord overthrew without pity. <laughs> and then it gets worse. For he did not kill me in the womb with my mother as my grave. I know, verse 18, why did I ever come out of the womb to see trouble and sorrow and to end my days in shame? Have you ever been a part of something where you're like, God is so in this, God is so a part of this, and then it sort of doesn't happen the way that you thought? Ever been a part of something like that? Ever been a part of something where you were so sure God had spoken, and then, well, it just is failing all over the place. I don't understand. Have you, is it possible to follow God and do exactly what he says and still not be successful? Yeah. <laughs> is that possible? Well, we'd all say yeah. But don't we secretly believe that Jesus should make us successful? I mean, don't we secretly believe that what he wants is to use our strength, not our weakness? Don't we secretly believe that success is more glorifying to him than failure? So who do we put forward when we're telling people how awesome it is to be a Christian? All of our successful folks. But Jesus, nah, he just heals some lepers or casts out some demons. 
And those were the people who bore his message. I mean, it's just, is it me? Or maybe we've missed something along the way. There are no formulas. There are no guarantees other than his good character and that we know the end of the story turns out great. But other than that, he just promises to be with us. He doesn't promise to keep us safe. How many of us sit on the cusp of big decisions and we're horribly paralyzed? And we're waiting for a sign in the heavens when God is inviting us. You get a sign in the heavens, you don't have to have faith. Faith means, I don't know where I'm going to land, but I'm called to jump. Faith means I don't know how the calling God's put in my life is going to turn out, whether it'll be successful or not, but I'll follow. Faith means you will suffer, you won't, and when you question each other, Jesus says, what's it to you? You follow me. See, I, part of me would like to have a Jesus that's more easily box inable. But then I remember that such a Jesus isn't worth my life. Go if you would, one more. Luke chapter 1. Luke. Chapter 1. Mary. Probably 11, 12, 13 tops. And understand that if you were a good Orthodox Jewish girl and you were giving birth, you prayed that you were giving birth to Messiah. I mean, that was a very common prayer. Mary hears that She, out of all the Jewish girls giving birth ever, will be one, the one, that will give birth to Messiah. She she hears verse 29, excuse me, verse 30 of Luke 1. The angel said to her, do not be afraid. You found favor with God. You will conceive and give birth to a son. You are to call him Jesus. He will be great and will be the son of the Most High. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father, David. So these are epic Old Testament promises. And he will reign over Jacob's descendants forever. His kingdom will never end. (laughs) Okay. You're 13. That's pretty big. That's pretty big. So she says, well, I'm a virgin, so that could be a problem. Angel says, no, no problems. No problems. Holy Spirit will take care of that. Not a problem. She says, okay. Then she gives birth, right? Well, we celebrate at Christmas. But sometimes we don't talk about what happened immediately after. Go to chapter 2. They go to the temple in Jerusalem to present Jesus. This is what the law demanded. And they meet someone there named Simeon. Simeon had been promised that he would see the Messiah before he died. And so when Simeon sees Jesus, he says to, to God, he says, well, you can take me now that I've seen your promised deliverer. Verse 34, then Simeon blessed them and said to Mary, this child is destined to cause the falling and rising of many in Israel and to be a sign that will be spoken against so that the thoughts of many hearts will be revealed. Again, sounds pretty epic. And a sword will pierce your own soul too. I don't remember hearing about that part. I just thought it was all glorious. I mean, and, and you think about what Mary had to live with as Jesus went through his public ministry. Flip the page over to chapter 4. I have preached some really bad sermons. 
You might be thinking, indeed, we're in the midst of one. (laughs) As of yet, no one has tried to end my life over a sermon, except that's what Jesus' hometown did for his first one. (laughs) So I always feel a little better better about myself. So Jesus says this highly, highly offensive thing. All the people in the synagogue were furious, verse 28, when they heard this. They got up, drove him out of the town, took him to the brow of the hill on which the town was built in order to throw him off the cliff. But he walked right through the crowd and went on his way. (laughs) And then he cooked some breakfast. I mean, it's just kind of like, oh, okay. (laughs) Now, I'm not sure how Jesus did that, but who had to stay in the village and go to the market the next day? And who was it that had to go to the, to the well the next day and, and, and to eat and live and work among the people that had just been clamoring for her son's death? Right? Mary did. In fact, we read later in the scriptures that, that Mary's other children mocked Jesus and refused to believe in him. And I wonder if Simeon's words resonated with Mary and a sword will pierce your own soul too. As Mary watched her son be tortured, I wonder if Simeon's words and a sword will pierce your own soul too. I mean, brothers and sisters, we follow a Jesus who delights in disrupting us, who delights in surprising us, who delights in being found in the least expected places. We now read these accounts and we think that they give us permission to make total sense of God when in fact they just do the opposite. So much of God's work only makes sense looking backwards, not looking forwards. And that God's highest project for you and for me is in our safety we think, well, God would never intentionally put us someplace that wasn't safe, right? Really? Really? All of those martyred for his name, all of the missionaries around the world that are in danger, all of the people worshiping right now for the privilege of uttering his name on their lips, he'd never do that, really? So we've been so conditioned that the gospel means safety and security that we just think we're entitled. And we think that, well, when we sit with big decisions to be made, ah, I'll just wait for him to kind of write it in the sky. When God invites you to live by faith and not by sight. And and when you're wondering, well, how come he treats this person this way? And how come there's this 38-year-old woman? And Jesus just says to me, what's it to you? You have to follow me. There is no one-size-fits-all way this works. And so I wonder, brothers and sisters, we, as we sit in a fear-drenched culture, you and I can easily fall prey to thinking that the gospel and the American dream are one and the same. That ever-increasing levels of security and discretionary income or what really the purpose of life is about. When you follow Jesus, 
he's embarking on exactly the opposite project. It is not, the safest place in the world is not the center of the will of God. No, if you decide to follow Jesus, it's just like, it's like hunting season back in Ohio and you're putting on antlers and marching through the woods. I mean, we just think that following Jesus makes us immune. Jesus sometimes raises more questions than he solves. Would you agree? Sometimes he creates more problems than, it, than he resolves. Would you agree? And we would still say he's worth it. He's looking for people who will just jump when you can't see the bottom, when you will step when you can't see the next thing, who base their trust on his character and on nothing else. So would you do this? Would you close your eyes for a moment? And would you hold out your hands, palms up? I want to invite you, and you don't have to do this. No one's going to care. But I want to invite you to pray these words after me. And you don't even know what the words are. But I invite you to pray out loud these words. God, I abandon my attempts to negotiate, to manipulate, and to control you. I forsake my sight and ask that you would give me faith instead. I pray for courage to trust you and to lean not on my own understanding but to follow. Brothers and sisters, 